Get your kicks for a living. Hey man, what's your style? How you get your adrenaline flowing out? How you get your adrenaline flowing?
You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Glenn Head. Uh, Glenn's new book is Chicago uh, from Fanographics, a memoir of an artist as a young man. Uh, as well, Glenn is was involved, uh, one of the folks, uh, with the fantastic Snake Eyes anthology. I think you co-edited that with Kaz, right? That's correct. I did, yeah. We both worked on that. And the uh, also the excellent Hotwire uh, anthology from Fanographics came out about... Yeah seven years ago and uh your own comics avenue b and and gutter snipe actually yeah and i unfortunately i have a i have a copy of avenue d but i don't have a copy of gutter snipe i looked through could not find it and i should also mention you were in the fantastic anthology bad news Uh, oh yeah yeah that's that's the one that led up to snake eyes actually yeah okay i didn't know there was a linkage between the two yeah, there definitely was. I mean, it, it started as like a kind of SVA project and then it kind of developed and uh, then it sort of went into kind of a hiatus for a while and then a third issue came out of it and then that sort of ended and I was looking to kind of continue it and then it just was decided when me and Kaz and some other people got together to come up with a different title and then we came up with that and then we also ended up with a different book as a result as well. Yeah. That, that's how that it one thing sort of led to another it was part of like what i think of as sort of the new york comics scene from like uh the late 80s mid 80s that, that ended up happening yeah it's like a weird <laughs> biblical like raw begat bad news which begat snake eyes yeah yeah <laughs> i think it's part of that east coast thing yeah that's how i put it um now usually 
when I do these interviews, I talk to folks about um, kind of leading up to their latest work, talk about the past works, but I almost feel like your new book, which looks, um, presumptively speaking of yourself, um, fresh into early years of art school um, and not art school. Um, so it seems like it kind of informs the rest of your work mm -hmm. in a way like I don't know if I'm making sense with what I'm saying um, but I feel like it's kind of appropriate to jump right into your latest stuff if that makes sense uh... <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't really a question as much as a, a, a blabble for me um, now I was looking around and you um, this is a book you've wanted to do for quite a while. Yeah, this is true. I mean, um, I guess what I'd say, uh, you, you may have that issue of Avenue D there that has this strip in it, a uh, three-page strip called The Muhammad Ali Story. Mm -hmm. And that particular strip I did sort of almost as a short story piece that maybe someday I would turn into uh, a huge piece, which is what Chicago is, a huge novel that contains that. Because what I really liked was working with these characters who I'd, I'd met when I was in Chicago, just as characters in my big story. And so I had worked with that, that three-page story of meeting Muhammad Ali when I was broke and homeless and on the skids in Chicago. I'm thinking that the whole idea of Chicago as a story might really be good. So I uh, came back to it. So, yeah. Now, it's something I've been thinking about quite a while before I, before I got to do it, though, yeah. And you kind of ended up there um, as just kind of not a purposeful... I don't know how to put this right. My brain's not firing on all cylinders today. Um, it's okay. Mine is... <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't exactly purposeful. I mean, that, that's one thing I was trying to put across with the story, which is that um, there wasn't exactly a lot of well-thought-out purpose in the kind of things that I was doing at that time. I was uh, kind of crazy, kind of in love with this girl who's there in the first chapter, this, this girl, Sarah. And um, so I, I end up in art school, and I'm not really grounded enough to deal with the art school experience at all. And so I take off. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the way the story happens is that things do just happen when you're like that. If you're not grounded enough, if you're kind of crazy, and that's how I was, you just take off and see what happens and let things happen. And that's kind of where I was at at that time. And it's also about what it's like when you're, when you're 19 and you decide to do that and, and things just happen. And they can happen kind of crazily, which they did. You know, were you pretty sheltered up to the point of going to art school, living suburbanly? Um, I guess I'd kind of say I was probably not quite as much as it appears in the book, but to some extent I was. You know, I mean, growing up in the 70s, uh, there was a lot of stuff that was not really that far removed from you. It's just that... Uh, how would I put it? I mean, I was no stranger to, to drugs, although I was to sex at, at the time the book starts. Um, but I think that 
the way I was living at that time was kind of in a bubble. That's, that's the way I'd put it. And I think that's what the suburbs really are about is kind of living in a bubble where you don't see the bigger picture at all. You don't see the wider world at all. There's a scene in the, in the first chapter where um, I say to my father that the way I see the world around here, meaning the suburbs, is everything supposed to be some nice, neat package where it all runs smoothly, and I don't want that. So in a way, I want out, but at the same time, what that indicates is that I don't really know what I want out from. And that's, of course, what this particular coming-of-age story is about. Maybe to some extent they're all about that, which is that you're trying for something else. You just don't know what it's going to be, and you're not going to know until you find it. And in this particular coming-of-age story, getting my face rubbed in it, which happens to be Chicago. Tell me about how the role that Underground Comics played for you um, in that suburban bubble um, as your kind of intellectual outlet of finding this weird, unusual world. I mean, in the comic, you have a Rory Hayes poster on your wall. In your yeah, bedroom. and that's Wilson one and a Crumb one, and I actually did have that Crumb one. I liked having that Crumb one up because it, it was a poster that I had, and it's from a from a story in Zap where Mr. Natural is pointing up saying to Flaky Phone, your quest into the unknown. And I thought that really fit well with what the story was that's going to happen because this was about to be my quest into the unknown. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what Underground Comics kind of represented to me was this unknown world that I hadn't experienced and that looked amazing and was very seductive to me and that I wanted a piece of, but again, I didn't know what that piece would be. And Underground Comics were also, as a kid growing up, they were kind of a sanctuary to me because, first of all, I was the only one who I knew, essentially, who read them. So it's kind of like that thing for, you know, a kid who loves this band that no one else has ever heard of. And that's what it was like for me growing up with all that. So from an intellectual standpoint, it was just different from anything else I was seeing. And it also was a gateway into another world, which was also what has always fascinated me about comics is that that's what they offer as a gateway into another world, another experience you can step right into and kind of in a very cheap format, which I also find very seductive. Mm-hmm. So comics, comics definitely offered that and they offered that in a way that was like X-rated and dangerous and you didn't know where it was going to take you. And you also, as a kid, the thing that I, I found fascinating later was that that most of the artists that I found myself really intrigued by, in fact, paid a really high price for the art that they made and the life that they led in making that art. Mm-hmm. You know, there's artists like Rory Hayes, who you mentioned, or Jim Osborne, who's another one whose work I really loved. These were people who were really delving into some very dark stuff that as a teenager, when I was looking at it, I, I saw that it was dark, but I didn't know how dark. I just thought it was cool and amazing art. But the worlds that they were delving into, and in the case of Rory Hayes, there was a lot of uh, methamphetamine involved. He was a speed addict. And with a lot of the other artists, you know, there was alcoholism. And and this can happen with people generally in life anyway, but it can particularly happen with cartooning. And cartoonists is that, like, you spend too much time alone. You need to fuel yourself to get this work done. And it's not really that good for you. And uh, that was one of the things I... 
ultimately also found very fascinating was that uh, this is not necessarily a world that's that's very good for you. So, it it's like your uh, your father's warnings keep ringing through. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he was trying to explain that to me that uh, you know you you might meet some real sleazeballs in this racket too. And I was like, Dad, you work on Wall Street, and he's trying to tell me, yeah, but with a different standard of living and. That was that was the, one of the main things that, and this was something that I wanted to work on in the book was like the the class elements of somebody who's a suburban kid who's looking into this other world and not recognizing how good they have it and not recognizing that that gateway into another world is from the comfort of their own suburban bedroom and that the world that is actually being depicted is not that same world. It's yeah. it's one with greater risks than I was capable of seeing and that my father was trying to explain to me that I didn't recognize in a sense how good I had it and that the world I was flirting with was uh, a world where you know was not how good you had it it was kind of how how bad maybe you had it you know did it take a while to kind of resolve that clash um, I don't even know if I want to say clash but that that opinion um, of something you're going into because um, how I would feel at that age is fuck you dad I'm doing what I want um, well that was really exactly what I felt and it was also like um, not seeing uh, but again you know from, from living in a suburban world from that standpoint you don't see that uh, the world that other people live in isn't the same one that has the comforts that you have and as a teenager of course you're saying like fuck you dad I'm gonna do what I want you know mm-hmm. um, I, I think it was important to me to to show this in the book though that um, he really had my own best interests in mind it's just that I wasn't really capable of seeing that and like any kid to a certain extent but for an artist in particular you really have to make your own mistakes. You have to go out there and, and find what's going to work for you and what isn't. And if you get killed in the process, that's your tough shit, but that's really how, how you have to go about living it and experiencing it, or at least that's how I did. I don't, I don't think that everyone has to, has to experience things like that, but it was what I needed to do, and it was what I needed to do to uh, not just have something to write about, because I didn't do this so I'd have something to write about, but so that I would have kind of an unmediated experience. Mm-hmm. I think that was really important. Like years later, I, I, I heard some things about, uh, you know, the, the poet Rimbaud and that what he had done at a certain point, I found this out years later, was something not unlike what I had done, which was say, fuck you to the world. I don't buy any of this. None of these experiences are genuine or true or necessarily things I can believe in so I'm gonna go my own way and I'm gonna roll around in the gutter for a while and what I come up with will be a more true experience and I have some identification with that partly because I was crazy enough to think like that and also because I wasn't doing it out of any kind of poetic reasoning I wasn't doing it to like end up in the gutter because I thought that was a cool thing to do I I ended up in the gutter because I just didn't know any better Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I rolled around there for a while. There's something unique about that point in time um, when you're doing this because it's also like the world's kind of done with the whole go off the grid hippie thing. 
Oh, um, yeah. And so if you did this 10 years previous, your experience would have been a lot different. Um, yeah, I, I think it would have. You know, I mean, the, the hippie thing had kind of ended and, you know, the fact that the hippie thing had kind of ended was also part of this whole story, which takes place in the late 70s, so that by the time I, I meet some of my heroes, I'm, you know, coming face to face with that. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, Crumb in particular had kind of had it with the comics scene at that point. And he wondered why, he seemed to be anyway, why I was even bothering with it, because the whole thing was sort of a done deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that whole thing had kind of ended, and I was just sort of stumbling around in the remains of it, you know? Do you feel like, I mean, it's, it's a kind of amazing um, cycle of mistakes that, upon mistakes upon mistakes within the book. Yeah. Um, was there any learning at all? Like, did it take, was there a point where you're like, okay, what the fuck am I doing? Um, or something like that? Um, let's see. I, to be honest, I guess the short answer is no. Um, the longer answer is, I think that when you have kind of devastating experiences, and a lot of them were in this, this book, the whole thing about being on the street and starving, and it's, it's a good contrast that and the suburban world, because you might have some idea of what it means to quote-unquote starve for your art, or go hungry, or, or you name it, but if you don't actually live that, if you don't actually have that as a lived experience, you can't really know what it's like to only be thinking about food and only be thinking about warmth and only be thinking about having a place to stay that night. Um, so when you have those experiences and, and they're really devastating to you, you don't look at them and scratch your head and think, now I've learned. You know, you don't, you don't see it as any kind of learning experience. I mean, the, the closest I came to that, and, and this happens in the book, it, when I've been picked up by my dad from Chicago, from Chicago and we end up going to Cleveland, we're in this restaurant and I'm then thinking the one thing you can't ever do is uh, end up on the streets no matter what. You can't ever let that happen. And at that point, I'm talking to my dad about like, what do you do to make a lot of money? And he's telling me about sales as a way to go. And in those moments, there's a kind of realization that as a lifestyle, you can't do what I had done. And that was kind of the end of that particular part of the journey where I was realizing this, that, you know, you, you can't live like this, that this is just not a way that you can carry on and it'll work for you. And, and, you know, it's not like I was never a little crazy after this point. In fact, I was, but I kind of made sure never to end up on the street again. So I guess in that respect, maybe, maybe all of that experience was a learning process and I just moved away from it after it had happened because yeah, you don't want to end up in a situation like that. After that, after the story in Chicago, is that where, when you moved to New York? Uh, after, no, I mean, after, after Chicago, I moved back home to be with the folks for a while. Mm -hmm. that, that's the, uh, decompression chapter. So the last chapter is uh, pushing things way into uh, 2010. That's when I'm back in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering about when you ended up. Because you went to the SVA, am I right? Or am I... Yeah, that's correct. I did. Yeah, I went to SVA back in like 83. Oh, okay, yeah. so it was a number of years after that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a little while after that. I, I bummed in and out of art schools a few times, even dropped out of SVA once before going back and taking it serious. Now, in the book, I'm kind yeah. of left hanging. What happened to Skip Williamson's cats? <laughs> um, I, that's a good question. I think Skip was coming back that day after I had uh, done everything that was required of me. I, I didn't just leave them to star, <laughs> but uh, that wouldn't have been... Uh, that wouldn't have been right. Okay. So, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that. That's a fair question. I mean, you might ask that because I left my own cat in Cleveland and just took off. And at a certain point, I'm like, well, I wonder how my cat's doing. So, yeah, you could you could see that maybe I was that way about Skip's cats, too. But that would have been like Dirty Pool, considering he was allowing me to house sit. So that didn't happen. It, it, yeah, I was I was like, what's going on? He never hears back I, from Skip. I, 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 and that's a good question. <laughs> Um, then tell me about meeting Skip. Uh, was he kind of the first of the comics underground folk that you had been in contact with? Um, yeah, he was. And in fact, I didn't even realize he was going to be at Playboy when I got there. And I think that actually really helped me get a foot in the door, as it were, and get a little bit of work from the place. Because when I met him, I I knew his work. I could talk sort of intelligently about it and so yeah he was he was the first guy i met there uh who was was part of any scene and i could just you know connect up to it right away so he was a really nice guy and he was also very very patient with me as you know a sort of wild-eyed 19 year old who just i would mouth off and i would say anything and he just he was uh i guess he could see that I was right off the streets and that I'd been sort of quasi homeless even at that point when I got to Chicago. So I think he was very, uh, very willing to put up with me. He would, he would allow me to hang out there and I would come in there every few days and, and he was, he was pretty good with it. So yeah, that, that's pretty much how that went. And, um, he, he also liked my work at least enough to, you know, keep having me come back. And, the other thing worth mentioning is that this being 77, I was one of the first people to come up after the initial, you know, underground comics thing. Mm -hmm. So he was interested and all those guys were interested in seeing just what some of the next phase of underground comics was going to be. So they were, they were curious about seeing my stuff. It's, yeah, yeah it's interesting because I mean, there's the, there's the point where you kind of have like that post and underground where folks are just trying to ride the wave but then there's the folks after that that are influenced by the underground and you can see it yeah and i and i think i was one of the first of those people so he was he was curious about that and my stuff was like insanely detailed as well and i think it it showed that influence it showed what uh some of the next wave of comics might be that had grown out of the underground so yeah stylistically uh who are some of the folks that were feeding into that that style you were doing at the time oh well you know i mean i was really influenced um i think i was really influenced by wilson at the time i i, I saw his stuff and just thought it was so out there in terms of uh subject matter and stylistically it didn't look like anything that i'd seen before mm -hmm. and uh see that was the thing that i've often thought about underground comics when i saw them was that on a purely stylistic level they really kind of went apeshit in a way that comics before then hadn't you know they were totally unlike ec comics which 
in a lot of ways worked with kind of a house style most of the time, even though there were artists like Wood or Elder or Davis who, they were individual, but they were still working within a very recognizably realistic style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and underground comics seem to, seem to just fly off the handle in a different way. It's, it's like a lot of the artists from that era who I think of as being really great, whether it's like Kim Deitch or Rory Hayes or Jim Osborne or quite a few others, they, uh, they really were doing their own thing and they weren't necessarily the most skilled draftsmen, but they were highly original in terms of, in terms of the way their work looked. It didn't look like anything that had come before it, a lot of it. You know, you could see influences in it, but still it was really going off on its own in ways that I thought were really wild and really, really took me for a very wild ride and, and, and really intrigued me and, and uh, made me want to cultivate my own weird style. Made me think that like having a really weird style would really be something fascinating and great. I think I also looked at underground comics a little bit the way maybe some folk musicians, when they heard Bob Dylan, they would hear that and think, wow, this guy sings really crazy. I think I could probably sing that way too. And, mm-hmm. you know, looking at underground comics, you could see that, well, maybe I can't draw like Crumb or Robert Williams, but I can still do something really out there, really original. So I guess I, guess I had a lot of these kinds of different reactions to this stuff when I saw it. Well, I, I kind of like that you're mentioning Rory and Deitch. Um, it's a really neat stuff thing about those guys, especially, is like, they're so um, their styles are so them and not as dependent as some other folks may be on like the crumb style and the crumb legacy right um, I mean they're all the a lot of the early guys they all have very distinct style but there's something very separate about them where especially with yeah, what Kim's doing yeah yeah definitely totally their own thing and and I really admire that kind of primitiveness too where What's more important, it seems like, is the body English that's required to make the statement than uh, a sort of really great draftsmanship ability that would allow the statement to be made. Yeah, I like that. It seems like you're like a continuous student of comics. Um, Like the way you read comics, like you're thinking about it um, in a different way. Like not just you know, haha, this is funny, move on to the next thing. Like, there's like a process to it? Uh, a process to it. In the way that I look at comics? In the way that comics have really influenced you throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what it would be, though. I mean, I've been looking at them for so long. Uh, at a certain point, I, like, I don't know that I look at them that much anymore. I mean, my, my, uh, my impression was that, like, what, what happened was that with 60s Underground Comics, because the comics code ended, and these guys were free to draw basically anything they wanted, whatever the subject matter might be, they were also allowed to draw however they wanted, mm-hmm. whatever style that might be. And I, it was like a dam burst, and all these incredible styles came out, and it struck me that that what happened that followed that is there was kind of a, I don't know if I'd call it a consolidation or something, but what, what then followed that, it seemed to me that, that the high point stylistically with comics seemed to, seemed to hit 
in the 80s with a lot of these artists like uh, Burns and Panter and Beyer and Kaz where, I don't know how I would describe it, but but that was kind of like, to me, especially with someone like Burns, who's like the purest comic stylist I could think of, that was kind of like the peak. And it seems to me that since then, uh, it's not that there haven't been great styles since then, but it's more like, it seems to me anyway, that uh, since then, there's been an acceptance of all kinds of drawing mm -hmm. and what kind of drawing you may be doing and whatever those influences might be, you use them. And those are, those are the tools in your toolbox. And from that, you make your statement. From that, you build your vocabulary. And from that vocabulary, you work with that and you make your statement. And I guess what I'm saying is that uh, that's the way it works formally, that, that all those different stylistic forms are, are now just up for grabs and usable and you use them to, to write your book, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. That's, that's just the way I've sort of uh, processed it. I'm curious, um, kind of continuing with that conversation about your time at the SVA and how uh, learning there uh, affected your own comics process. Um, I'm presuming you've had some really great cartoonists as teachers there. Well, you know, the one great cartoonist I had as a teacher was Art Spiegelman, and he was just a terrific teacher who really broke everything down and put it back together again for you. Um, it was really great having that because he taught a course called The Language of Comics where different comics, like for instance, uh, a great strip by Harvey Kurtzman, Corpse on the Engine, was dissected. And it was really taken apart piece by piece so that you could see just how Kurtzman worked with this nine-panel grid of rhythmically telling the story of this hand-to-hand -hand combat of this American GI against, I think it was a Korean, and what that life-and-death struggle was really like and how Kurtzman did it rhythmically by actually using uh, three lines of text above each panel. This was something that was like really mind-blowing to see at the time. Because when you read that strip, or when I read that strip at the time, I knew it was great, but as a neophyte to comics, I really didn't have any idea why. And so this was a great course because it took comics apart, as I say, and, and showed you the mechanics of how a strip could work and why a strip would work. So that was, that was definitely, he was definitely the, the best teacher I had there and the only one that I really took very seriously for like three years, so... Was at that point it was like there's Spiegelman and a couple other folks, and then a lot of like mainstream superhero folks. Yeah, there was mostly a lot of that, but also, see, comics weren't really. This is also odd too, because SVA really like I think now glories in its comics history, but at the time it was really contemptuous of it. The the illustration department. Uh, not Marshall Erisman, but the other guy whose name escapes me. They were just really down on the comics department, really down on comics generally. And, you know, there was kind of it being the bastard stepchild at SVA at the time. So it's really interesting to see now how, like, you know, comics are really the shit over there because they really were treated like shit then. And they, you know, they, they weren't 
held in high esteem at all. But that's also just the way comics were looked at at that at that moment. You know, the, I would have to say that the early '80s was just not a time when when comics were thought of well. I don't know if movies were being made of superhero comics at the time. I have no idea what superhero comics were popular in that time. But a lot uh, of mutants and teenagers. Yeah, there was there was a lot of that kind of stuff. So. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's what that was like. And I mean, when I was there, also, uh, Kurtzman and Eisner were teaching. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I had them as teachers, Eisner in particular. But these were classes you could just show up for and hang out and get a grade. You know, when when you're at an art school, what you're really looking for is a really good teacher, or a good course that you can really focus all your energies on. And so, yeah, that's how that went. And is that how you got involved with uh, Bad News? Yeah, it was actually. That's that's how that got going because Raw Magazine had already been out for a while, and uh, and so the only way because there was no publisher then at the time. I mean, you know, Last Gasp existed, but they weren't really publishing anything, and that was just sort of this, you know, old hippie thing. So at the time, it was like really accepted that the best way to go with comics, the only way to go was to uh, self-publish them. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I don't know what the distribution channels were at the time, but, but Raw managed to work with them. And so when we were working there, we were in the same ballpark getting ads from, you know, dance places like Danceteria and places like that to help bankroll the comic. That was what you did. That's, that's how, that's how that, that whole scene worked at that time. So were a lot of the contributors really actively involved in in its coming out. It wasn't just, here's my comics. and Oh, yeah, you had to be. I mean, there was no other way to get the stuff out there, so you, you had to be involved in, like, you know, finding printers, doing all that stuff. I mean, you know, it was, in that respect, much worse than it is these days, where at least there are, you know, there, there's different publishers, for one thing, like Fanographics and Drone and Quarterly, which are great, but there's also smaller name ones that can handle this for you, and I don't know. It seems like there's a lot more activity now. There definitely is. There's a lot more people doing this stuff than there were then. There were maybe like uh, 50 people in the cartooning department at SVA, and I believe there's hundreds now. So the the field is really crowded with people that uh, are in love with comics, in love with the graphic novel, really believe that, you know, that's the art form du jour, you know? So. Now, I want to talk about a couple of your uh, non- Autobio short stories. Sure. Because um, I read through everything I have today um, of yours, and some stories really stuck out to me. Um, in particular, one was uh, Peep Freak. Where oh, yeah. You have these monstrous uh, creatures uh, working in the Peep Show booths on, uh, I think, is it 8th Street in New York? It would be 8th Avenue. Uh... Yes, between seventh and eighth, the deuce, as they call it, Forty Second Street. Yeah. yeah, that's what that would be. There was a there was a peep show place there called uh, Peepland that actually did have this doorway that looked like the way I designed it, where like you know you'd walk through the door and it was like walking into this uh, walking through this keyhole into this area that uh, you know was peep show booths and porn mags and all that. So that's the surreal psychedelic world of. Uh, of that character, yeah, that, that's what that is. And so the the main character is this like eyeball, like this head with a million eyeballs, 
on yeah that's that's eyeball eddie yeah that's correct and then the the woman character which is basically like a mouth yeah in the general midsection area right right eyeballs as nipples i think it was yeah i guess we'd say that i mean it's sort of uh uh uh, I guess I'll say porno take on the Rene Magritte painting. Uh, I think it's called The Rape. I think that's where that comes from. Anyway, yeah, there's that. And then there's another character who's kind of a death's head character. So they're in sort of a triangle in that in that scene, yeah. I'm really interested in just like how uh, kind of grotesque it is. Um, yeah, well, um, it is. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how much there is to say about it. I mean, I, I found the eyeball Eddie character, the, this character with all these eyes on his head to be just kind of intriguing because he's sort of passive and incapable of dealing with life except through just seeing everything. And he doesn't have any real controls on the situation. Although I think in that particular story, he does kill the guy who's after the female character that you mentioned. So yeah, that was your basic triangle of the story. But I mean, what I, I think I was attempting to do was, was try to capture the kind of uh, hardcore surrealist vibe that I would sometimes think I saw when I was walking around the 42nd Street area where it was kind of like, it seemed like the raging id was there in every, every personality, whether they were voyeuristic or, you know, death-inclined or sex-inclined, like that, that female um, yeah, it's kind of it's. I don't know how else to explain this. Yeah. It's just kind of weird. You know, it's, it's just such a good uh, symbol of just, I guess, the hedonism of the time and place. Yeah, and the decay and the squalor of that of that era and that vibe. Yeah, it was definitely going for that. It's true. Um, now you did a story about Wilhelm Reich, um, oh, yeah. and that, right. that seemed kind of unusual for me looking at your other work. Uh, uh-huh. as a topic and I'm interested kind of your interest in doing a story about Reich about Reich? yeah uh, what was the interest for you of doing a story about Reich well um, I think I'm really fascinated by obsessive characters characters who believe in what they believe in to the extent that they do to the point that it might get them into a great deal of trouble or something like that. Uh, with with Reich, he was this guy who came up with. He he believed not unlike Freud that everything was, you know, all our issues are are basically sex related. Um, I think he thought that even more than Freud did. And this whole thing with the organ box, it was just kind of fascinating that you would sit in this box and energy would leave you and that or that you would acquire it it was it was kind of unclear to me and it's been a while since I since I did that strip but I just found that kind of fascinating that he believed this to such an extent that he was really willing to fight for it and be drummed out of uh, the psychiatric community mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he, he, he was still all for it and there were plenty of people who really believed in orgone therapy including William Burroughs and you know some other crackpots, but yeah, he was he was uh, he was kind of out there, and so I just really enjoyed doing that that strip about him. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can explain it better than that. But was, he uh, 
yeah, he was he was really an unusual guy, especially for that that time, you know, for his beliefs. And he was willing to fight for them. He ended up dying in prison, died of a heart attack. Yeah. Um, he's a yeah. He's a very tragic. Yeah, uh, really figure tragic. that way. But as far as I know, some of his uh, his theories are not completely discredited. You know mm-hmm. what they are, I can't recall. But uh, yeah, he's he's still well thought of in some circles. Now um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your editing work, uh, Snake Eyes and Hot Wires uh, sure. specifically. Um, now you mentioned earlier that Snake Eyes uh, kind of came out of bad news. Well, it did. Um, you know, the the whole thing with bad news was that it it started off as just kind of a studenty project, and then by the second issue, it uh, it definitely showed a lot of improvement and was a very strong anthology. Um, there was some kind of row between uh, its its editor Mark Newgarden and Art Spiegelman, and and then the whole thing kind of got squashed, and that was kind of the end of it. And uh, yeah, that that killed it. And then a few years later, there was a third issue. But as a going project, it it wasn't really what it could have been. And I think that that kind of affected me because. Uh, you know, I wasn't in Raw, and I just thought, you know, there, there are a lot of cartoonists around here, and we would all like to be putting out an anthology. And in truth, the anthology thing at that, at that time was something that was a bigger deal than anyone would remember now, because these days no one would really want, I think, very much to do with one. People would rather mm-hmm. do their own book. They'd rather do their own graphic novel. They'd rather do their own thing. But at this particular time... That was not the case, and so if it was a really good a really good comic, whether it was say Weirdo or Raw or something like that, or Snake Eyes, a lot of people would really be involved in getting their work out there. They were really going to try to do that and get their work seen, and so yeah, that that's that's what happened with Snake Eyes. I mean, was there we, an ed- Sorry? Was there like an editorial vision between you and Kaz um, of like the kind of work you guys wanted to bring together um, and help promote? Uh, an editorial vision? I, I'm not sure exactly how I put it, but the short answer to that is yeah, there was. I mean, we definitely were looking for stuff that was weird and unusual and unique. I think we were both probably pretty influenced by Weirdo in terms of... Uh, See, Weirdo definitely was was not going for the polished gem approach that Raw did, and mm-hmm. Weirdo was really, I would I would say, a very organic comic in the way that it went from uh, one issue to I guess thirty, I think is, and it, it had all these different editors and all these different people made it in there as a result of those editors, and I think that really helped it as a as a comic to have a lot of different voices in there. And the point is also that a lot of those voices were some some were highly skilled and, and some were really kind of untutored stylistically, that's what I'm saying about those voices. And uh, so I think that I think that we were very inspired by that and wanted to have more of that if we could. You know, we we were looking for the individual voice as opposed to something that was necessarily really slick mm-hmm. but 
Yeah. It's a lot so, tighter though. Like Weirdo, when I think of Weirdo, like Weirdo is a good title for it because it they're as you said, folks come from many different directions with it and rough, you know, polished stuff. Uh but there's something interesting about uh what you and Kaz did with Snake Eyes where um you really bring together some amazing stuff. Um I think it's one of the best sources for David Sandlin stuff in that yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did he did a lot of good work for it. And uh yeah, I mean the thing that I like about the anthology is just the whole mashup aspect of seeing all these different styles banging up against each other. And if, if they're really good, strong individual voices, you can get a terrific sort of collage effect from all that. I was really happy with how uh the other one I edited on my own, Hotwire, ended up by the third issue where you had all these different different voices, different people whose work, you know, was highly individual and just looked great together. I think that uh, a lot of artists are very well served by being, by their work being seen in that context, as opposed to, you know, to fill out an entire book, you know? Yeah. And that, and that's, that's a big challenge for folks. I mean, I don't know how long you worked on Chicago for. Um, Six years. Yeah. And that, that can be hard when you're, kind of keeping everything in a box for six years. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, one thing that, that Art Spiegelman did that was very smart was to um, put out Mouse in chapter format in RAW so that every time a new issue came out, and for a while they were coming out probably, I don't know, twice a year or so, uh, there was always a new chapter. So it would it would keep people, you know, uh, up on, on where the story was going. Um, I don't know that one could do that at this point because, as I say, I don't think there's any interest in anthologies. Um, I just don't think people are that interested in them. It strikes me that the whole world of comics is one big anthology, some huge sandwich to take a bite out of, and I think that more anthologies just sort of, you know, confuse the issue, so to speak, because there are so many voices out there, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's complex because there are anthologies that, that do well, uh, but they're very uh, particularly marketed towards a certain audience. Um, and it's not necessarily work that excites me. There's some anthologies that excite me, but there's also a lot of um, kind of more um, reader-friendly um, and less challenging type works. Hmm. I wasn't even sure there were any any of them out anymore, but that shows you, you know... I guess I'm not as up on that stuff as I as I could be. It's I mean it, that's the fun thing about comics though it's it's impossible to be up on everything. Well, especially right these, it's you know I mean uh, for the past twenty years or so, um, it's been this massive outpouring you know that refuses to stop. That's, that's, <laughs> that's comics refuses to stop. But you know more people are into it than than used to be too, so that's all good you know. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think you'll see, you know, going to these different spaces and just see uh, the different local works uh, when you go on tour for the book. Uh, yeah. it, it's really interesting to see what's coming out of different areas. Seattle itself has an amazing, uh, vibrant scene right now. Um, yeah. It's, it's quite exciting. Um, I look forward to checking it out. Now, uh, reading all your work kind of one day I really see uh, stylistic jumps um, uh-huh. like I see this the kind of stiffer stuff in the 80s to kind of the more um, robust stuff in the 90s like 
the zero zero era, and then like I see another leap um, to what you have in Hotwire, and I'm interested about how that works for you um, as as you develop your own style, and you continue to develop it your own style. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, how would I put all that? I mean, I I think my style has become more organic over time than it had been. Uh, I don't think I would say my style has ever like loosened up exactly. Um, one thing that I was very aware of in Chicago was working with my own influences and um, not that I ever tried to duck them, but um, what I liked about doing the story of Chicago was that some of those styles, those underground comic styles that you can see in my work are present when I'm in the midst of meeting some of these people. So that, you know, the style is hopefully kind of a comment on uh, the world that I'm in, which is itself kind of underground. Um, I, I mean, mostly I think my style just develops kind of unconsciously. I don't, I, the way I always look at it these days is that I actually try not to think about style. I think that even thinking about it is kind of like uh, a centipede watching its own legs in terms of being able to walk. Yeah. Um, most of the time I really just try and draw as realistically as possible. I, I just try to capture the world that I'm drawing and make it as believable as I can as opposed to having a style, you know, because... It, to me, the, the idea of a style and having one is in itself kind of self-conscious. And unless I was doing a, a comic that was about style, I'd rather try and just make the story realistic because most of, most of the stuff that I'm doing these days is about a recognizable reality. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think I draw weird enough as it is that I don't need to make to attempt any stylistic... Uh, flourishes, as it were. I just, I just try and try and draw what I see, and it comes out as weird as it does, if it does, because of that. I mean, I guess I'd say I see myself as kind of a not quite primitive artist. You know, there there are some aspects of my art that can be kind of primitive. Like sometimes I'll get the perspective right, sometimes I won't quite. Uh, sometimes my drawing is quite accurate sometimes it's a little bit less than accurate but uh yeah that's that's how it works um it's all it, it's one of the things i wonder about is how uh different things feed into that too like how you kind of subconsciously take in these different um things that are around you and these different things you're looking at um i was thinking of like with your hot wire stuff how uh someone like stefan blanchette uh might be um, kind of feeding into what what you're producing yourself. Uh, in Hotwire? Yeah. I don't know. You mean um, you're asking me if his work... Well, just like how um, looking at different works, um, when you're wor- looking at stuff in the 2000s, I mean, it's going to be very different than what you're looking at in the 80s and the 90s uh, because so many different styles are developing and come out. Um, I don't know. It's just something I think about. Uh, one of the things I talk about with uh, another cartoonist a lot is like how 
Um, people kind of work through stuff to find their own styles and how it's okay to kind of grab things or take things. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I guess what I'd say to that is that the way I really started out was uh, was through, you know, as I said earlier, looking at underground comics a lot and really being influenced by that and the, the impact of all those crazy styles on my own work. And a lot of the textures that um, I, I, I realized over time, one thing that really fascinates me is atmosphere and texture. And uh, there was a lot of that in underground comics. And that's something that I really try to capture when I do say a city story like I really want it to feel like it's lived experience and that you really sense that that I've been on the street and that I know what that street looks like and when you see that image you can practically smell it like I really I want that atmosphere to be very breathable and I guess that for me in a sense is more important than say good drawing. Mm-hmm. As much as I really admire artists who draw really, really well, uh, sometimes that facility can even get sort of in the way of, of things being believable in terms of atmosphere because it'll just feel like a perfectly well put together drawing, if that makes sense. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of going through styles, I mean, I, I think when that really happened for me was at a much earlier point when I was looking at underground comics and uh, I I uh, I was looking at a lot of that stuff and, and one thing that I was always really drawn to is a really good story and one of the one of the best underground cartoonists whose work I, I was really into for quite a while and he was kind of a mentor for a while in a way is Kim Deitch because um, his his storytelling skills were always, I thought, really very superb. He was really, really good at that in ways that I actually thought that a lot of the other underground guys were not necessarily. They didn't necessarily work out their stories really, really well. Mm-hmm. And he always did. And I think that really influenced me. And, you know, uh, a lot of the, the stuff that influenced those guys ultimately really influenced me, such as Basil Wolverton and uh, Chester Gould, like like that stuff. I, I think of those guys as being sort of the the godfathers or the grandfathers or whatever of, of underground comics, because in the case of, of Gould, he was willing to depict this aspect of, of humanity that's really base, you know, that a lot of people, of course, even today still kind of buy into, which is, you know, you know, squeaky clean heroes versus these really ugly villains and we got to like lock them up and all that kind of shit. And, but, but Gould really had that as a vision and visually he's a good example of somebody who I, I also wouldn't say was a terrific draftsman, but from a visual standpoint in terms of uh, really capturing what violence feels like and having a terrific graphic sense, uh, nobody, Nobody could compare with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Wolverton, too, although with him it was very playful stuff that he was doing that uh, as the underground comics sort of, you know, co-opted it, especially people like Crum and Wilson, it became sort of, you know, sexually gross and sweaty and, you know, in Wilson's case, even kind of vile and horrible. But, yeah. So I, I, I'm always interested in how these styles, the... Uh, sort of mutate from one generation to the next. It's always interesting to see how that happens and, and where they go 
next with it. It's amazing how the kind of gross innocence of uh, Wolverton is yeah, spread yeah. through everyone. Yeah. And it's also interesting just how, uh, like I said earlier, the, it was like the, the dam broke open and all this stuff that had not been acceptable as, as subject matter then became acceptable, you know? And so all these styles that already existed, like, like Gould and were, were there to be taken and, you know, reworked and turned into something different, something that was, you know, scarier. But it's interesting because, you know, Wolverton's work was always sort of, I think, right on the verge of being, you know, potentially scary. It was just so sort of childish and fun that it, it sort of got around that. But once you really looked at it, 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 you know, could be used in that context. Yeah. There's a, a great quote just touching on something you were saying a couple minutes ago. My friend uh, sent some stuff for uh, Kim Deitch to look at and get feedback on. And Kim's main response is, just tell a good yarn, man. Yeah, that sounds like Kim. He, <laughs> he always really had that attitude about it. And uh, I really agree with that. I mean, I think, I think that uh, as excited as people will get over how amazing good drawing is in comics and, and everyone really like geeks out over that, like how great Crumb's drawing is or this or that or the other. But um, I, I do tend to think of, of drawing as just the tool that is being used to tell the story or the mm -hmm. joke or the idea. I think that that's really what it's about. Um, it's not if it's about like a comic book cover and, you know, we all love the splash panel and all that kind of stuff. And, and, the splashy page layout, but really these things are just tools to be used for the sake of the story or the idea or the joke, you know? I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think there's a good moment to end on. Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Glenn, for, for joining me today. Uh, reminder, folks, Glenn's new book is Chicago from Fanographics, and Glenn will be on tour in, in oh, well, in a couple of days after I post this, he'll be signing September 10th at uh, Desert Island, uh, October 10th at Quimby's uh, in Chicago, uh, appropriately located for the subject of his book, uh, as well as in November at the Miami Book Fair um, and at Comics Art Brooklyn in New York. Um, yes, it's true. Looking forward to all of it. Thank you so much, Glenn. I really appreciate this. And, uh, yeah, I hope uh, you have an enjoyable tour. Thanks, Robin. And thanks a lot for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Six feet underground
Yeah.